I'd like to welcome you into Crossroads this morning. If you're joining us here in person, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you are, are here with us today. Uh, we're jumping right into a brand new teaching series today uh, called Questions Jesus Asked. Uh, didn't really realize this. I know Jesus asked a lot of questions in the Gospels, but when I was doing some you know, research this past week and looking into this, came across this number that when you look through the Gospels, and even when you include uh, the, the rest of where Jesus is quoted in the New Testament, there are over 300 questions that he asked people around him. And, and the high number I saw by some, some Greek scholars said that that's even as high as 340 questions that Jesus asked other people. Sometimes he asked questions to his disciples. Sometimes it was the religious leader. Sometimes it was his family. Sometimes just the crowd around him. In some cases, he even asked questions of God including a question that he asked God while he's hanging on the cross that we're going to talk about here in a few weeks. But he asked these questions for a variety of reasons, maybe the same reason that we would ask a lot of questions today. I don't think Jesus necessarily asked because he didn't know the answer, but he asked because he wanted maybe to spark some engagement, maybe start a conversation with somebody, maybe cause somebody to think a little deeper than they were already thinking. Sometimes Jesus asked a question to answer a question that was asked. Somebody would ask him something, and he would just spin it right back and, and ask them to think a little bit more on that. And so over the, the, the next few weeks, we're going to dive into these questions, because Jesus would ask a question, I think, as much as anything, to teach a lesson. He would ask a question to get somebody to think so that it would lead to some kind of a discovery within them, and those questions are still very prevalent and very relevant for us today. So we're going to start today and over the next few weeks, look at some of these questions so we can learn the same things that those people learn in that day and time. Today we're going to start with a question that might be one that you all need to be asked today. It's a very simple question. Why do you worry? Okay, now full disclosure, Jesus doesn't specifically ask that question. So I just kind of totally contradicted everything I just said, right? Instead of asking the question, why do you worry, what he does instead is just flat out tell you in Matthew chapter 6, do not worry. He says a very pointed, a commanding statement, do not worry about your life. But to follow this up over the next 10 verses in this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus asks several questions that tie right back to this command. And a couple of verses later, maybe he asks the most important question in all of this when he says, can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Now, I'm going to ask for a show of hands here. Sometimes I say none, sometimes I say yes, but I want a show of hands here. How many of you have ever at some point in your life worried about something? <laughs> I'm counting who's lying out here this morning. Um, <laughs> Next week's question is, why do you lie in church? So come back for that, and we'll, we'll cover that question next week, right? I mean, I, it's, it's just human nature. We worry about things. Some things are big things. Some things are little things that we worry about. Sometimes it's a simple worry that you can let go of. Sometimes it's a worry that grabs a hold and clings to you and doesn't let go. And that worry can actually lead to a deeper issue that we refer to as anxiety, before we kind of jump in this morning, I just want to address this and, and tell you that if you've been around this church since I got here a couple years ago, you've, you've heard me preach this one already. Some of you are new, and so it'll be new for you, but every so often there's a sermon that I feel like it probably needs to be brought back out and preached again, even if you've heard it. 
And what's going, with what's going on in our world, with what's been going on in our church, with what's been going on all around us, I feel like this is probably an appropriate time to talk about this topic because worry and anxiety is one of the most common struggles for Americans today. I saw a stat from the American Psychological Association that said one in five Americans currently struggle with some form of a mental illness. And that over 42 million adults claim that mental illness is some level of anxiety. Anxiety has become the number one health issue for women in America today, the number two health issue for men in America, only behind drug and alcohol addiction. Over 25% of teenagers, this is from a couple of years ago, this number may be higher now, over 25% of teenagers are dealing with some level of anxiety disorder as well. Over 22 million Americans have said that anxiety has led to some level or form of depression as well too, to the point where suicide has become the number two cause of death for children between the ages of 10 and 14, only behind unintended accidents. Americans spend over $50 billion a year treating their anxiety and I saw a number two that was staggering. In 2022, the American economy took a $1 trillion hit to things that could be tied back to anxiety through loss of work or loss of ability to work or having to help take care of somebody's anxiety struggles. And the question we often ask is, why? Why do we have so much anxiety? And in so many ways, our world is safer than it has been. We, we know about what's going on. We can see threats coming from further away now. Uh, we, we even, within our own lives, banking is safer. Our finances are safer. Yes, inflation is high. We get that. But so many things about our lives are safer because we've got a tighter grip on control at times. I think the answer of why is anxiety increasing exponentially is very, very simple. Maybe it's a very churchy response, maybe it's an over-spiritualized response, but there's a direct correlation when you look at two statistics in our country over the last 20 years. As God has moved from being the center of people's lives and the center of family life and the center of culture life, over the last 20 years that has decreased. And over the last 20 years, anxiety has increased at almost the exact same rate. I don't think I'm overthinking it when I say that there's just a direct correlation there. There's a direct tie there. We're also a society that has, has, has gotten less socially connected than ever before. Yes, COVID kind of did that to it, but we were already trending in that way. Where smartphones can, can give to texting or to video calls rather than face-to-face -face meetings, face-to-face -face interactions. In some ways, it's never been easier to communicate with people all over the globe, but yet we've taken for granted the opportunity to meet face-to-face, in-person, and get that social connection. Anxiety comes from this just perceived loss of control, and anxiety often either leads to or is triggered by fear. And when you look at those two words, fear and anxiety, I think sometimes it's easy to think those are one and the same. And let me just tell you they're not. They're, they're kind of like distant cousins, but they're not the same thing. Fear is like this. Fear sees a threat and reacts. There's a snake in the grass over there. I'm going to walk over here. That's fear, right? It, it triggers fight or flight. We, we either take care of the situation or we get away from the situation. That's what fear does. Anxiety, on the other hand, imagines a threat and can't move on. There might be a snake in the grass over there, so I'm going to go walk over here. And I'm never going in that front yard again. That's anxiety. It grabs a hold of us. It doesn't let go of us because there is very possibly a very real threat out there. 
That is what anxiety does to us. Anxiety's been described as a tidal wave of what if. Uh, just this, this overwhelming tsunami of of possibilities, of what could be there, and anxiety puts us in a constant mental state of fight or flight, constantly looking at how we can either fix or avoid a situation altogether. See, here's the difference is fear actually can be a very good companion because fear can keep you safe. Fear can protect you and those you love, but it has to be temporary. Anxiety never lets go. It holds on and it clings to you and it puts you in a struggling place, almost like you feel like you're in a prison or in a cage and there's no way out of this. Now, let me just say this. If you are one of those that struggles with anxiety, I know you all raised your hands a moment ago. With, I'm not going to ask you to show your hands if you struggle with this. If that is you right now, take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath because you're thinking... Okay, I came to church to worship Jesus and to talk about Jesus and we're talking about this and now I just feel it building up and up and more and more and more and, and Kurt, get off this topic. We will next week, okay? Take a deep breath. It's okay. Because we're gonna talk here in just a moment about things that Jesus had to say about this. And maybe it's, it's uncomfortable for you to talk about this topic in church because maybe you were kind of like I was when I was younger. We were taught not to doubt or worry about anything because that showed that we didn't fully trust God. And let me just say, the older I've gotten, the more I've studied, I don't think that's one and the same. I don't think, and I'm gonna kind of say something about that in a moment, but having fear and anxiety is not a sign that your faith is weak or fake or false. It's not a sign that you're not a strong Christian. It's a sign that you're human and you're dealing with an emotion in your life. Here's why I think that. Do you know what the most highlighted verse in the entire Bible is? You might say, well, it's John 3.16. That's a good one. Or it's Romans 5.8. That's a great one. Or, you know, it's basically the entire eighth chapter of Romans. I've highlighted that whole thing, you know. No, the most highlighted verse in the entire Bible is found in Philippians 4. You know what it says? Do not be anxious about anything. According to Barna Research Group, they polled American Christians, and that's the most highlighted verse on average for the American Christian. Paul wrote these words just a few decades after Jesus walked this earth, and he's already addressing this topic as if they struggled with it back then too, just like we do today. And this verse, when you look at the Greek language, it's written in the present active tense, meaning that this is something that is most likely going to be an issue for you at some point. And that no, you won't never struggle with this, but you don't have to carry it day after day. Because Paul's saying, don't be anxious. It's there. It's a real threat. Let it go. Move on. In his book, Anxious for Nothing, Max Licato talks about this by saying the presence of anxiety is unavoidable. It's going to be there. But the prison of anxiety is optional. It's going to be there, but you don't have to live there, is what they're saying here. And let me give you a disclaimer, and I've said this before. There is a level of anxiety that you may struggle with that is so severe that it is entirely appropriate to seek professional help with that. Last week, we wrapped up our Holy Spirit series by talking about the gifts that God gives people. And for some people, he has given the gift of counseling or of being able to be a therapist or being able to be a medical doctor. And God gave those amazing gifts to us to utilize. 
So if you have a level of anxiety that is crippling you, do not think that you are any weaker in your faith if you have to seek professional help. It's entirely appropriate to do so. I want you to hear my heart in that. Here's why I say that. Anxiety is not just a mental or physical issue. I think it's also a deeply spiritual issue. We have a creator that we are called to worship and to follow. And what does Jesus say is the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and what? All your mind. Psychiatrists have kind of determined that the the mind is capable of firing in over 100,000 directions at the same time. And some of you are like, that explains so much. (laughs) If you come and sit in my office for more than about 15 minutes, you'll be like, what is wrong with this dude? He's like a squirrel bouncing from limb to limb. That's, that's me sometimes. I just, it takes me a while to get everything focused in the same direction. But think about this for just a moment. If we have a savior and a creator that wired us and designed us and wants us to love him with all of our heart and soul and all of our mind, does it not make sense we have an enemy that wants us to fire in 100,000 directions at the same time? Because here's what I know about the enemy. He is very, very smart and cunning. And he is not going to attack me head on in a way that I see coming. So what's he going to do instead? Just get me to look over here and over there and over here and over there at all of this stuff that I can't control, all of this stuff that I have nothing to do with, and just let it burden me and let me worry about it. And maybe for you it's the same thing here. And that's where we sometimes get so stuck is a mind that's divided looking in a million directions. But yet Jesus says in Matthew 6, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. I look at this, and again, the word that jumps out, that should always jump out when you see it, is therefore. Because as we said a few weeks ago, you have to ask, what is it therefore? What is the therefore therefore? This passage is a 10-verse passage found right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And when you are studying Scripture... When you're looking at what does this mean and how can I apply it to my life, one of the things you look at is what we call the literary context. Where does this passage fall in Scripture? Again, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, this three-chapter section of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, hey, this is what it's like to live a life in the kingdom of God. It's contrary to everything that you thought you knew, but this is what life is like to live in the kingdom of God. And he spends the first half of this or so, chapter 5 and part of 6, giving you basically six things. Don't do this. Instead, do it this way. Kind of how he breaks this down. Then he gets in the middle of chapter six onto three things that you just shouldn't do. And the last one that you read about in chapter seven is do not judge. This one is number two, do not worry. You know what comes right before this? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where they will get destroyed and they will rust and they'll be worthless and be thrown away. Instead, what's he say? Lay up treasures in heaven. And he goes on to say in this passage, in verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. So he's talking about wealth and possession and about chasing after those things and making those your focus. Does that sound kind of familiar with the world today? Get what you need to get. Get as much money as you can. Buy as many things as you can. Take care of yourself because nobody else is going to do it for you. That's kind of what the world is telling us. And then here Jesus says in verse 25, Therefore, in light of all of that, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about what you'll eat or drink or about your body that what you will wear. Is your life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Now, hear me out. 
He's not saying, hey, just totally neglect your family. <laughs> you know, don't go to the grocery store. Don't go shopping for clothes. You know, I'll just drop manna from heaven. And he's not saying that, okay? What he's saying is don't let it overburden you or stress you out. And some of you are like, yeah, but Kurt, I have to go to the grocery store. And the prices are outrageous. I need a small loan to buy milk. Like, I get that. Prices are high. And yet he's saying, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. And it's easy, again, to read this and say, okay, Jesus, do not worry. Sounds a little easier said than done. And let me just tell you, I don't have the gift or the ability or the time in one sermon to tell you just why you should let worry go completely and how to, how to never think about it again. I, I acknowledge that's a deeper topic than we can, we can approach today. What I want to do is look at this passage Jesus gave us and give a couple of practical things you can do to help keep you from worrying. And maybe that's what I do, helps me not get so caught up in the stuff I can't control or the stuff that, that is out of my, my, my area. Just helps me to focus on him instead. So looking at these words with Jesus, he says not to worry. Why should we not worry? Well, here's one reason. Number one, we have more important things to focus on. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of stuff happening. People are, are seeing what's going on in Israel right now, or they're seeing what is going on just across our world and our country right now, or what's happened in our church in the last several weeks. And, you know, people ask, well, are, are you concerned about that? I said, well, I mean, my heart breaks, but am I worried? No. My heart breaks for the people in Israel. My heart breaks for people who were hurt here in our church, that were hurt in our community. That were, My heart breaks for that. But I have a job to do, too. And I can't let all of that hurt get in the way of what I've been called to do. And what have we been called to do? Go make disciples of all nations. And baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We've been called to go seek and save the lost. We've been called to go serve others. Called to bring life to the full to other people. So yes, we have something more important to focus on because it's what God put in front of us right here, right now. We talked about the last few weeks, trusting the Spirit to guide you in those steps. Doesn't mean the other stuff's not important. It's very important. And it's worth our prayers and it's worth our, our, our sadness and our sorrow. But focus on what God has put in front of you right here, right now. Kind of keeps you from worrying about the stuff that is out of your control. The second thing you can do to not worry is remember this. God loves you and he provides for you. Think about the, the, the song. Maybe you remember the song, You're a Good, Good Father. We've, we've sang that in the past. It's a little bit older song at this point now. But when you think about God in those terms, as a father, what's my job? It's to provide for my kids and my wife, to provide for my family and to protect them and take care of them. Look what Jesus says here in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Think about a bird and what a bird does. It flies around, it eats, it builds nests. It might drop seeds to help, you know, things grow naturally. That's about it. I mean, sure, other birds can do other things, but by and large, that's a bird's life, right? What do we do as humans? Well, gosh, just look around. Look at what we are capable of as humans. It's just infinitely more what we're capable of and what we're valuable to God of when you look at it in, in that perspective. Here's what I mean by that. When, when I talk about us being more valuable 
than the birds of the air, or as the flowers of the field, as he also mentions in this, this passage. If you want to know why we're more valuable, go back and look at the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 1 gives us the creation account. And at the end of that chapter, verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Okay, he's talking with the Trinity, with the, with the Son, with the Spirit. That's, that's where the plural comes in there. But just notice what he says, make humans in our image. I don't know about you, I've been very blessed and fortunate in my life to get to see amazing wonders of creation. Getting to live in the Northwest and see things like Crater Lake or the Redwoods or, or the Pacific Coast or getting to see a sunset on the Mediterranean Sea a couple of times, getting to, to get out on the, the, the Gulf of Mexico and see those like white sand beaches, getting to see a sunset across the prairies and in the Midwest, getting to put my eyes on some amazing animal creation like seeing elk for the first time just kind of is mind-boggling. And you think about all these things like, God, that is beautiful creation, how could anybody doubt your, your existence by looking at this? And yet of all creation, he picked one thing to bear his image. Me and you. He picked us. So, so just wrap your minds around this for a second. If he cares for all of that and takes care of all of that, but you're the thing he picked to bear in his image, how much more does he care for you? How much more valuable are you than those things? Psalm 8, we read this great passage. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is mighty or higher than the heavens. When I look at the night sky and I see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? What are humans that you should care for them? If you remember that you're made in his image, that you bear his image, and like he said in Genesis 1, to be like him. It becomes easier to think about how he takes care of you all the time, no matter what's going on. But yet we still worry, and we still struggle with anxiety. We still let those creep in and, and, and just pack us down sometimes. And again, I can't unpack all of this in one sermon. But there's a simple fact that we need to remember, and a simple truth we need to remember It'll help us through these times. Number three, worry doesn't change anything. Like those of you who raised your hands earlier when you said, yeah, I, I worry at times. How many of you have ever seen a situation and you've just worried and worried and worried until it was fixed? You didn't do anything, but you just worried and worried and worried and suddenly, boom, we did it, God. I helped. <laughs> Now, there's a difference between a worry and a concern. There are some things we see, and they do concern us, and they do bother us, and it triggers uh, our, our change, triggers us to, to action, to do something to actually take care of the situation. But a lot of times, our worrying can't change anything. I tease my grandma about this. My grandma's uh, coming up on 94 here in a few weeks, and it really, ever since my grandpa passed back in, in 2006, she's you know, become the matriarch of the family, really stepped into that role, and her job is to worry about us. <laughs> I tease her about that sometimes. Uh, when, I, when I'd be at her house, she'd, well, you know, your brother this and this, or, or you know, your cousin this and this, and just I'm, I'm, just, I'm just concerned. I said, well, just keep being concerned, and eventually it'll fix it. And she just would glare at me, you know. And 
So I heard it said once that worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. You do work, but nothing gets accomplished. You don't go anywhere with it. That's why Jesus said this in verse 27. Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? Now, there's something to point out here, this, this single hour. It's not a literal measure of time here. Okay, it's not like God's going, you know, you were going to die at noon today, but because you've worried so much, I'm going to let you live till one. That's not exactly what he's referring to here. The old King James says it can add a single cubit to your stature. Okay, that's 18 inches in case you're curious. I'm 5'9", 5'10", with the right shoes on. You know, I don't necessarily need 18 inches stacked on top. I take six, but I don't need 18 stacked on top. I don't really want to be quite there, right? No, it's this idea that can you add anything to your life by worrying? Anything of value by worrying? On the flip side, worrying actually dives deeper into the idea that you just have a little less confidence in everything around you. I don't know if I'm quite this harsh with it, but William Mounts is a Greek scholar. He described worry like this. He said, worry is practical atheism and an affront to God. Now, I said earlier, if you have anxiety, that doesn't mean your faith is weak. But what he's talking about here is not, hey, you're, you're a bad Christian if you have worry. He just says the whole concept of it, if that's where you live, it's telling God, I don't know that I can trust you fully. Number four, it kind of follows that up. You want to help not worrying? Remember that God is in control. This is one where sometimes it can get a little bit difficult to do because we like control. We like to have our hands on the steering wheel here. But you have to remember that God is sovereign. And because he is sovereign, he is perfect and in perfect and complete control over everything that's going on. He's not caught off guard by that stuff that's gone on in the Middle East or stuff that's gone on here in our local community. He's not caught off guard by any of that. And because we, we know that, we acknowledge that he's sovereign, we acknowledge that he's in control, and instead of worry or stress, guess what we do instead? We can celebrate that. Paul says in, in Philippians 4, to always be full of joy in the Lord. And repeats himself, I will say it again, rejoice. Paul leads into this whole concept and, and discussion of anxiety by telling you to rejoice in God always. And again, just like in verse 6, this is a present tense active verb. In other words, he is saying that you won't ever just not struggle with anxiety, but in the midst of that, you rejoice anyway. You celebrate God anyway because even in the midst of worry, you acknowledge that he's in control of everything. And I want you to hear this because rejoicing and celebrating God, this is not an emotional decision. It's not an emotional reaction. Instead, this is a decision that is deeply rooted in your confidence in God's sovereignty and ability to direct your life because you've seen what he's done in your past and therefore you can know what he's going to do in your future. Our cars have windshields and rearview mirrors for a reason. Now, obviously, yeah, you want to make sure you can see if a car is coming behind you. But sometimes your rearview mirror is helpful because it shows you where you've been. But you notice it's a lot smaller than your windshield that shows you where you're going. When you look back, you see maybe where God was with you through those difficult times, and it helps you to trust that he's going to be with you through the next difficult time, too. Because, again, as Jesus said, in this world, we will have troubles, but take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. 
you will trust what you see out of him and learn to let go just a little bit more. So here, here's the, the thing with this. We need to understand perceived control creates calm. But yet, a lack of trust can fuel anxiety, and anxiety increases as the perceived control diminishes. Like, how many of you, you've got to have such a controlled lock on everything that you don't trust anything outside of what you do yourself? That may sound like it's a little much, but, but just imagine you won't get on an airplane to fly somewhere unless you bring your own parachute, you know, just in case. Or you're going to go eat lunch you know, after, after church today, but you bring your own silverware and your own condiments because, you know, I don't trust that those were cleaned properly. Because this may seem extreme. But we like to be in control. Perceived control creates calm. I don't know how many of you are like this, but Jennifer and I sometimes, I think we have a little more trust in the situation when we're the one driving the car rather than riding in the passenger seat. You know, it's, it, I always say, I'm glad I've got her with me because I know there's a car that's about to turn a quarter of a mile in front of me. You know, she likes to let me know that. And then when I'm in the passenger seat, I'll say the same thing, and she's, you know, shushing me. It's like, we, we kind of, when we're not in the driver's seat, there's that idea that we're not in control. I think about that with change. A lot of people are okay with change if they're the ones steering the change. But even if they know where you're taking them, if they don't have any say-so in the shots to get them there, that's where that can kind of, kind of creep in just a little bit here. But here's the thing, we want certainty in life, and certainty is actually a pretty cruel imposter. You've seen somebody that looks like they have it all together and their life falls apart. You've seen somebody who is a millionaire who has got it by honest means and by good gains and they've done everything right and they lose everything because of somebody else's decision that hurt them. Or maybe you see somebody who is in perfect physical condition. They exercise like they're supposed to. They have the perfect diet. Everything is great and they get a cancer diagnosis. Nothing that they could have done to stop that. And I think that we sometimes, again, like to have control over things, whether that is our financial situation in life or making sure we've done everything that we possibly can. And hear me out, you should have a good savings account. You should take care of your family. That's responsible. We shouldn't just go completely willy-nilly and live in debt and all of that. But be careful how you chase after that. Because if that's your focus, that's what Jesus just talked about in the, the previous section. If that's your focus, how are we any different as a church than the world around us? And as a church, we are called to be salt and light in our world. We cannot be salt and light if we have the exact same priorities as society at, at, at large. Christianity will only have an impact on society in proportion to our distinctiveness from society. So trust in him. No, I don't know what's going to happen in our world. I don't know what's going to happen over in Israel in the coming days and weeks. I don't know what's going to happen in our, our world around us here in the KC area in the coming days and weeks. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know this. The person who does know is sitting on the throne. And he is sovereign and he is good and he sees all and knows all and is all and is in complete control. And here's what else I know. Number five, if you want to stop worrying the more you start to understand God, the more your anxiety will decrease. Your anxiety will decrease as your understanding of God increases. 
Here's what we need to know about anxiety. When we have things that we worry about, we need to acknowledge a truth. Whatever we're worried about is something that is temporary. Even if it's something that persists for a long time in your life, it's ultimately temporary because our time on earth is temporary. But we put our trust in God who is eternal. Our trust in God who has always been and will always be. And in Matthew 6, Jesus is reminding us that he is eternal and that we matter to him in our eternal scope of, of everything. Paul reiterates this and I think gives a great practical way to approach this topic of trying to avoid worry. Go back to Philippians 4 verse 6 when he says, Don't worry about anything. Instead, do what? Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul gives a progression there. There's a specific order to this. He says to not worry. He says, do what? Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for what he's already done for you. And then he says, that peace that makes no sense to our logical minds will just overwhelm you. And that peace will guard you and protect you from all of those potential things out there that the world is going to throw at you. I think what it does is it steers our minds to God instead of the stuff we can't, we can't do anything about. Max Licato said it like this, the, the mind cannot at the same time be full of God and full of fear. And so what they're saying there, again, it's not that fear... It is something that, that you can't ever have creep in on you. So the more you focus on God, the more you give thanks to him for everything, the less you're even going to acknowledge that this over here exists. The, the less you're going to let this be a burden for you because you're so focused and so locked in on him. So I, I read all this and it just it gives me this thought. And it's a challenge that I want to give to you all kind of today as we, we get ready to wrap this up. If you find yourself struggling with anxiety or with worry or fear at some level beyond just your normal day-to-day. -day. If you find yourself in that spot, can I, just, can I just dare you to do something? No matter what it is that is causing you to fear and worry and have anxiety, worship God. Just go worship him. Just raw, unadulterated worship of the Father too often I think we find ourselves in a situation where we're wringing our hands or maybe we're grabbing our head and instead we should be getting on our knees and going to him. So find a way to do this. Pull up Spotify, pull up YouTube, do something and just put some worship music on and just sing along with it. Grab your Bible and, and, and go to the Psalms and pray through some of those Psalms where you'll see some people struggling with some of the same things. Talk to God. He can handle it. He can handle what you have to say. Because I just think it's only through that, through that pure and unfiltered worship and intimacy with God that you'll find that peace that passes all understanding. God never promises a lack of suffering. He never promised that everything would always be easy. But he said he would bring us peace. And here's what I think about peace. Peace isn't just the complete removal of conflict. We think about that, you know. We're at war, we put down our arms and go home, there's peace. That's not exactly what peace is. Peace isn't just stopping the conflict, it's being restored and reconciled back to the original design. 
And our original design was to live in complete harmony with our Heavenly Father. And through worship, we get back to that. We got back to that through the blood of Jesus on the cross, but it's through worship I think we remember that. And we come to that. And we realize that he is the creator of the world and the almighty ruler of everything. You worship what you trust. So where does God rank on all of that? Trust creates a hope that can't be explained or earned. Worshiping God helps us draw closer to that anyway. Folks, we're going to have troubles. We're going to have worries and anxieties that pop up. What are we going to do in the midst of them? Jesus wraps up this passage, I think, by telling us exactly what to do. It says in Matthew 6, verse 31, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For even the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father already knows that you need them. Look at verse 33, though. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you as well. He says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. I love that verse. Yeah, you know what? There's going to be problems tomorrow. And you know what? Even if I know them ahead of time and figure them out, there's probably going to be some more that pop up. Tomorrow can worry about tomorrow. No, seek him and follow him. And he goes on to say, each day has enough trouble of its own. I don't know if there's any such thing as just completely avoiding worry and anxiety. But I know what we can do in the midst of it. We can thank him for what he's already done for us. And we can worship him anyway. Let's pray. Father, we're so, so thankful for the peace you give us through Jesus. And I know sometimes it's a peace that is hard to wrap our minds around. It's a peace that sometimes is hard for us to comprehend. Because sometimes what is causing us the problem is blinding us to you. God, just tap us on the shoulder and give us that reminder. I'm right here and I always have been. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. God, even in difficult times, uncertainties, chaos, struggles, God, just give us that reminder. Help us experience that peace that you have. Help us see you in the midst of all of it. God, we're so thankful. You are a God not of confusion, not of chaos, not of craziness, but you're a God of restoration and wholeness and peace. We're so thankful for Jesus, for dying on the cross to bring us back to you. Grateful for your spirit that resides within us and leads us and guides us and comforts us. I'm grateful for you. Pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to read a scripture from Matthew 21 in just a second. It's part of uh, Jesus' life when uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were pretty well fed up with Jesus. And they're following him around everywhere he went and just looking for evidence that they could accuse him against and trying to get him in trouble. <clears throat> and uh, one day he gets up and he starts walking down the road and he's hungry and he sees a fig tree and he looks up to the fig tree and there's no figs on the fig tree. And apparently it's a time of year when figs should be on the fig tree. 
And so he says, may you never produce fruit again. And the tree withered away and died. And I'm like, wow, Jesus has got a temper. (laughs) But no, what he was actually doing was teaching. He was saying to the Pharisees, look, here's a fig tree that isn't producing figs. What good is it? And he's saying that to them. And he continues later on in the chapter. He says, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. And he said to the first son, go out and work in the vineyard. And the son said, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father said to the second son, go out into the vineyard and work the vineyard. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Which of the two were obedient? Which of the two produced? And of course the Pharisees answered, because anyone knows, it was the second, the first son, the one who, even though he said he wasn't going to, ended up doing it. Then he goes on to say this, Truly I tell you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering into the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the righteous way, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. Be careful not to read into that scripture and say, so God loves tax collectors and prostitutes more than religious people. That's not it at all. Don't read into it and think that somehow the tax collectors and prostitutes are better than religious people. That's not what he's saying at all. We're all the sinners. They were all sinners. It's how do you respond? Are you willing to be obedient? Are you willing to produce? And when Jesus says, go into the vineyard and do the work that I have for you, are you willing to say yes to that? And if you say yes, are you willing to actually go and do? Because Jesus is wanting us to see that it's not about just our words. It's about our obedience. It's about our decision to actually do and to produce. And I, for one, am thankful for the son who said to the father, I will be obedient. And he did what his father said when Jesus, the son of God, died on the cross for our sins. He didn't just use words to say yes. He used his body. He used his life to say yes to the obedience of God's will. And as a result, we all have the chance to be saved through him. So during this time of communion, it's one to celebrate what Jesus has done for us because he was perfectly obedient to his Father's will. But the second is to challenge you to be the first son, be obedient, produce, live out the life that God wants you to live as you go forth. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for all that you do for us. And we're just always appreciative of the things that you give us when we need them. And then we're just not as appreciative when we think that we got it all under control. But I pray that as you will help us to understand that we never really have anything in our control and it is all under your control and that we need to surrender to that, to be obedient to you and to produce the fruit that is what you want us to do. To be um, 
fruitful in our life in obedience to your will. Thank you so much for giving us that opportunity. In Jesus' name.